Welcome to Setsang. Could you please talk about the topic, being a messenger of truth? Well, there's no such thing, really. Uh, we are all truth. Everything is truth. Everything is beingness. Everything is God. There is just one. The idea of being a messenger is odd, really, when you think about it, because we are already that. People search for beingness. They search for their original face. But they already are it. It's already here. And so the idea that there should be a messenger is odd. I guess because people uh, don't know how to find their true self because their awareness is uh, always on the mind and uh, through the senses of the world, it's not a bad idea to have someone say, hey, look in. And so you could say that uh, you do deliver a message when you point in and say, hey, look inside. What's happening inside? Who are you? Who are you really? Forget this mind business, forget this body business, who are you really? What's aware? What's purely aware? What's here now? The moment you give yourself this uh, identity of being a messenger, you're lost again. Because all identities are false. There isn't any identity that's true. The identified mind, the ego, is the main cause of uh, not being able to find yourself as truth because it's constantly attracting attention to itself through its resistance to life, through its dreaming. So sometimes I talk about delivering the message, but I really don't see myself as the messenger. <laughs> I'm just pointing to you. I'm pointing to another part of myself, the truth, the true you, rather than the false one that claims to be you, that thinks it has a life, thinks it's had a life, identified with this form of suffering or that form of success or something. It's not you. Without a thought, you are. Before thought begins, you are. Turn awareness to itself, find that, it is silent, it is still, it is always here. And then the sham, the I, <laughs> is seen for what it is by the mind, fraudulent, nothing real about it, makes itself up every moment from reference points from the past, projected to the future, a few belief systems. All imagined. Take away imagination and who are you? Take away thought and who are you? What's here? What is this that is just aware, that is just conscious? What's this? <laughs> no messenger here. Nobody here. Emptiness talking. 
Any questions? Any statements? Any challenges to this teaching today? The first question is, what is the main obstacle to knowing who I truly am as truth? <laughs> I think I just answered that, but still. Awareness is aware of the mind, aware of the uh, ego, through the senses, aware of the world, but it's not aware of itself in most human beings. And it never has been aware of itself in most human beings. And the same goes for other animals that live on the planet. But in human beings, it can become aware of itself because we have the intelligence to turn awareness back to itself. We have the intelligence to prepare our mind for it. It's always here. The obstacle is the I. <laughs> no I, no problem. So the I contracts, it resists life. It's programmed to through genetics and all through, so through causal programming. But it can also be used to help turn awareness back to itself by asking the question, who's aware? Or what's aware? Every time a thought arises, who's aware? Follow it back to the source. What's aware? And in so doing, we can discover that we are truth. We always have been truth. And that we've always been at our final destination because it is here now. Some people like to call it uh, homecoming, but we're already home. Awareness is already here. Turn it back to itself. Find yourself as truth. A viewer asks, awareness on itself seems like a subject object still. Is it the final stage? Heck yeah. It's definitely the final stage. When awareness becomes aware of itself, you know yourself as... Well, it's hard to say. You know yourself as everything, but you know yourself as nothing. Depends on what the mind sees, what the mind perceives. Awareness on awareness, there's nothing here. Everything is one. There isn't any stages after that. When people have awareness on awareness and it, then it goes back to ego-based reality, well, there is a bit more because basically they're flip-flopping. Awareness is going to itself and then it's going back to the mind and then it's going to itself. This is flip-flopping. That's not a final stage. Final stage of enlightenment is when awareness stays on awareness continuously, 24 hours a day. And the indication of that <clears throat> is a presence that can be perceived by others. And in that presence, the mind can start to expand, start to quieten down. There's a certain feeling of joy, ecstasy in that presence. Silence, stillness. When awareness is locked onto itself. It's very beautiful. The mind rests in profound contentment.
but this subject object thing no that's over that's related to the ego being creating separation that disappears completely how can that be real when we are one If the root of all evil is selfishness, would you say that the highest form of service in this life is to share the Dharma and help others become free? Our highest form of service. I recall the uh, Gautama the Buddha stating that the, um, the greatest karma can be achieved by teaching the Dharma, in other words, teaching people how to be free. Uh, whether that's true or not, I'm not 100% sure myself, but it's definitely a nice thing to do because there's so much suffering here on this plane. It's nice to try to help people get free of that suffering and ultimately the way to get free of suffering is to wake up to your true nature and uh, live as that. Nothing else to do here but show people that. <laughs> so funny though, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you feel like you're the old man down by the creek selling water to people who walk past. They could get the water themselves, it's just there. But people don't want to look back. They get too involved in their egos, they get too involved in what they think in what they want and what they don't want. And really it's always here. It's always here. It's not somewhere else. It depends on what your mind decides to put first. Our awareness usually goes to what we put first and if we put beingness first, our awareness will go to that. Awareness will turn on itself. And so those who have awoken have put awareness first, or truth first, or beingness first, or God first, whatever you want to call it. That's why they've woken up. The totality uh, of putting anything first is brilliant, because we live where our awareness is at. Whatever our awareness is on, we live as that. And when awareness is on itself, when it's on truth, you live as truth, you live as beingness. If awareness is on the mind, well, you live at you live, you live as the different aspects of the mind. If the mind's angry, you live as anger. If the mind's frightened, you live as fear. If the mind's sad, you live as sadness. If the mind's analyzing, you live as analyzing. If it's procrastinating, you live as procrastinating. If it's worrying, you live as worry. Whatever we put our awareness on, that's what we live as. And so before enlightenment, you can practice putting your awareness on what is real. Anything is real except what you think. And it's way better to have your awareness on things that are real. Because they're less likely to hurt you. A viewer asks, is truth the same for everyone who discovers it? Oh yeah. It's the same as uh, going to the ocean anywhere in the world. It's always salty. 
enlightenment is always the same. There is no two types of enlightenment. There is only one type of enlightenment, and that's when that that is aware becomes aware of itself. <laughs> it's the same for everybody. It may be taught. People who wake up may teach in different ways, but they're all describing the same thing and pointing at the same thing. Can't You can't. There isn't anything else. There's only one. There's only one God. There's only one being. There's only one pure awareness, pure consciousness. It's here. It's always here. How can the seeker spread the Dharma or help raise others' consciousness without being enlightened? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, for, my, for me, I got involved with uh, Rajneesh uh, when I was 28. And I couldn't answer the questions people would ask, but I actually pointed them towards my teacher. I said, hey, have a listen to this guy. Have a look at him. And I did a lot of that. Um, yeah, I didn't uh, have the, I didn't have the arrogance to pretend I knew anything because I didn't. So I, I pointed them to my teacher, and and whenever I could, I would help my teachers, assist them in whatever they were doing, assist assist them in, um, in any way, shape, or form. Being in service uh, of the Dharma in at any level is brilliant, because there's nothing else that's worth doing here except raising your consciousness and waking up. Everything else is just repetitive sham, samsara, birth, life, suffering, and death, and again and again and again. Waking up affords freedom from that. It's the only thing that's worth doing here. And even if you don't wake up, at least in higher consciousness, you don't suffer. Because as your consciousness levels go up, you get to see all the things that create suffering in you, and you don't get involved in them. So, the best game in town is high consciousness. It's the stepping stone to super consciousness. A viewer asks, My friend said that everyone who is enlightened is connected and can communicate with each other. Is that true? Well, the first part's true. We're not only connected, we are one, but not just the ones who are enlightened, everybody else as well. We are all one. As far as communicating with each other, yeah, if they're in the same room, I'll have a chat with them, maybe. Usually when I come into the presence of someone who's awake, there's nothing to say anyway. The silence is too profound. I think what you're talking about, those communicate with each other psychically. So we've got this um, secret bandwidth that we actually communicate with around the world and discuss our plans and uh, our teachings and whatever else. Yeah, well, I've been excluded from that. Sorry, I can't help you. <laughs> if it does exist, I haven't been invited. <laughs> The spy world of the enlightened. <laughs> oh dear. When I first discovered truth and satsang, 
I wanted to talk to all my family and friends about it. Yet I soon discovered that they had very little interest in it. Do you recommend for seekers to keep their seeking a private matter or to share it with the people they love? Yeah, it didn't work for me to try to share it with people that I knew either. I started having awakenings in 1987 and um, I couldn't find anyone that I could talk to about it actually. Everybody I spoke to about it gave me a load of rubbish story. Didn't buy it, thought I was going nuts. Yeah, it was, uh, it was difficult. And my teacher was in India at the time. So he wasn't, I wasn't there, I was in Perth. So it was a bit difficult. I knew what had happened though. I knew what had happened. I experienced self as the universe and I was aware that uh, that's what had happened and that's what I was. But I did go back to ego-based reality quite profoundly and the ego claimed the experience, which it does with everything. Would have been good to have had a teacher at the time to say, let go of that too. But I haven't found it easy at all to talk to people who aren't into truth about truth. I'm here for the willing, I'm here for the seekers, I'm here for those who want to know. Because really they're the only ones I can help anyway. You have to really want this, you have to really want to be free, you really have to want to have higher consciousness, you really have to want uh, to know yourself as truth. And if that's not in the repertoire, well it ain't going to happen. It is that thirst for truth that allows people to wake up that allows people to raise their consciousness levels, to allows them to do whatever they need to do to make it so. So I'm here for the willing. I don't uh, stand on a corner and teach the unwilling. I'm not a missionary. People ask me, what do I do who aren't into truth? And I don't really say much. <laughs> I sit on a couch and talk to people. <laughs> I teach people how to be happy. That's, I say that sometimes. But nobody's interested. Only seekers are interested. And I'm interested in seekers. I feel sad sometimes when I see my parents suffering because of the way of looking at the world. And I'd like to help them, but they haven't asked me for help. Do you sometimes feel helpless in trying to help people? I accept that that's the way it is. Um, I know that I can't help people. I just point to the truth. And um, if they want, I'll point to the obstacles that are in the way of truth for them. Uh, but it's up to you. you, you you're the one that's going to create your reality. Nobody else creates it for you but you. And the world is suffering. The Gautama the Buddha got it right. The first noble truth. Life is dukkha. Life is dissatisfying. It's suffering. And this suffering is caused by desires and attachments. He got it absolutely right. So you, you don't just have to look at your parents. How about looking at everybody that's ego-based? They're all, they're all suffering one way or another. Some people move very quickly so they don't notice the suffering, but they're still suffering because they're desiring things to be different. They're dissatisfied with life. They're attached to what they think they have and they're frightened of losing it. This is suffering. So I see it everywhere. 
And I do my best to teach the truth, to point people to the truth. But I don't have an expectation that anyone will ever hear me or ever do anything about what I say. It's all okay. I'm in acceptance of life as it is. If you want peace, find acceptance of life as it is. A viewer asks, is enlightenment just a permanent satori or is there more to that? No, it's a permanent satori. It's awareness staying aware of itself continually. Yep, that's it. And so from my perspective, when my eyes shut, there is nothing, just fast nothing. Sometimes fast everything. When I open my eyes, there is love because I love the world and I love the people in it. And I love the animals and I love the plants. I love the sky. It's nice out here. What is your main motivation for teaching? Love. Yeah, love. You can't stand by and watch the world suffering and not do something about it when you have love. So I hold that saying, point to the truth, point to how people can get free, show them the obstacles that are in the way if they want. But it comes from a motivator of love because I don't have any other motivators left. They all died with the eye. Unconditional surrender is something that's not really understood. It doesn't mean you survive. Unconditional surrender is a death. The obstacle gets out of the way completely and lays itself down to truth. And then <laughs> there's profound contentment for no reason. But being in the world, you see the suffering, you see all the people suffering. And love, love's there, so love goes, well, it affects the mind. It affects the mind and you want to do something. You want to somehow help people with their suffering. And so you become kind and you become generous and you become loving and you, you try to help people in whatever way you can, in whatever service works. I think the highest service is trying to teach the truth, trying to teach people how to be free. It's up to you. Love is very beautiful. It's worth serving in itself. It's the true jewel of consciousness. It's a great motivator. It's the beauty way. What do you think of missionaries or people who go door to door to spread spirituality? Well, I don't think of them. <laughs> but you're asking me to think about them right now. Well, I still don't think about them. If, if, if they can help people find love, they're doing amazing work. 
because love is the cure-all here. It is the only thing that has value on this planet. Nothing else has value, really. So if they're teaching love, the love of Jesus, and people find it, they find that love, yeah, they're doing good work. What is the best way for me as a seeker to spread the Dharma? Get yourself a big sign, big sign that you can carry around and put out on a freeway somewhere. Get some paint, paint. The end is the end is nigh. The end is near. Go and stand out there and put that up. <laughs> Armageddon. <laughs> You really want to help people, love them. Because when love's present, you just want to take care of everyone and everything. You want to spread the Dharma. Yeah, it's difficult. I tried it when I was before I was awake. I, I did try, but it's very difficult because uh, you're not living it. You're talking about something that's not really uh, your at-the-moment experience. So it's difficult. So I used to head people towards my own teachers who were awake because only awake people can teach people how to wake up, really. Someone who's not awake is lost. How can they teach something they don't really know? Head people towards someone who's awake. That's the best you could probably do for anyone. Rebecca has two questions. Uh, the first one is, what drives an awakened person to take Bodhisattva vows? <laughs> this is silly. I took Bodhisattva vows before I woke up. <laughs> I didn't take them after awakening. I, when did I take them? Sometime in the 90s, early 90s. I took Bodhisattva vows. And uh, I have no regrets over that because that's what love dictates anyway. To try to help everybody get free. to stay here and not not uh, not get uh, taken into the big void at the end. I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if it's possible to stay here and come back now. Just don't know. But I'm here now. And my whole life is dedicated to helping people get free. There's nothing else. There's no other reason for me to be here. And Rebecca's second question is, do most awakened beings take the vows? I really wouldn't know. The Bodhisattva vows are actually Buddhist vows. 
um, from the Mahayanan religion. And uh, not everybody's involved with the Mahayanan religion or the Bodhisattva vows. I really appreciated the, um, the Tibetan Buddhist religion, Mahayanan religion, and I enjoyed uh, studying it. And I decided to take the vows because I thought it was a very beautiful thing to do. I think a lot of people do take those vows, but they don't really understand what they're actually taking. They don't understand the significance or the importance of them. They're very beautiful vows to take, though. I don't know if awakened people take those vows or not. I don't know any awakened people who have, but then again, I don't know that many awakened people. I'm not attracted anymore to awakened people. I pretty much lost interest in awakened people 21 years ago when awakening occurred here. It's okay. It's okay if they do. It doesn't matter. It's okay if they don't. It doesn't matter. If someone's awake, they're a light. That's brilliant. We need more light on this planet. A viewer asks, how do I take the Bodhisattva vows? Well, if you go online and look up Bodhisattva vows, and study them, just read them through, see if you agree with them and that you want to play the game, just take them. You don't have to be initiated by someone else. You can be. You can actually be initiated by uh, a, a spiritual teacher, but you don't have to be. You can just take them yourself. Just read them to yourself and take them and commit yourself to them, and that's it. You don't have to be initiated. They're just a vow that you make, and you know, hopefully your word's worth something. This question is from a viewer. It seems like enlightened people still have their own personalities. That stays. I thought preferences get uninstalled. Yeah. If you wake up, your personality will be used by beingness to operate in the world, communicate in the world, the same as your body will be. But the one that thinks it's had a future, has a future, and one that thinks it had a past won't be there. There'll be an absence. There'll be an emptiness of the noisy one. And the personality will still be there. The different idiosyncrasies will still be there. And so if you're really interested in waking up and there's some of the things about your personality you don't like that you'd like to change, Best you do it before enlightenment, because after enlightenment, there'll be no motivation to do it, because you'll be content for no reason. And so with regards preferences, there's nothing wrong with having preferences. It's the addictive demands that are a problem. When we actually desire something to be different aggressively inside ourselves, when we contract or go into resistance to make that desire uh, occur, rather than actually being wide open and uh, in acceptance. So it is true for myself, I gave up a lot of preferences because I saw them in the way of helping people. 
most human beings have a preference not to experience pain. And if you're really wide open, if you're really wide open and you're empty, and you come into the company of humans, quite often they're full of pain, and you get to experience it. And that can be a bit disconcerting, because there's a preference not to feel pain in all human beings. But I gave up that preference, because it was in the way. It was in the way of me serving. It was in the way of what, how my heart was affecting my mind. So yeah, I gave up a lot of preferences. Now existence just <laughs> does what it does. It's easy to be uh, in my room with my eyes shut, just being, coming into the marketplace is difficult from time to time because the marketplace is noisy, it's energetically heavy and painful. But that's just how it is. It's okay. Kalimba would like to ask a question. Hi Kalimba. Hi Bertrand. I've had some good lessons in acceptance this morning. I only managed to get on onto the site about five minutes ago. And Oh, Kalimba, you missed the pit where I had I enlightened everyone. Damn, and you missed by five minutes, brother. Oh. <laughs> but look, the, the, what I wanted to say was, and you were talking very much about pain and stuff like that, is I was talking to Heather last night, who's having all these issues in Melbourne, and she was really, really, really upset and very down and sort of... I allowed it to make me a little upset as well. And I can understand what she's going through and she's got all these physical and health issues as well. So is there anything you can say um, for her and for me about being able to experience, see and feel the pain and yet still be able to let it go and not to compound it by resisting? Yeah. It's a good question, Kalimba. I, I had a, three years ago, my son uh, died uh, from cancer and he was um, 21 and it took him 18 months to die after diagnosis. And during that period of time, there was a recognition from my side that he was going to die. Uh, and there was a lot of grief around him, his mother, uh, his friends, uh, a lot of them went into massive grief over someone so young and so vital and so bright in the world dying of this terrible condition. And so from my perspective, I was there for them. My, the, story, the story of Vishwan didn't exist. I was just there for those people because not only was my son suffering, because he was dying, but all his friends were, and his family were, and so I was there for them. I can really, really feel when you share that, and it's it's beautiful, sad but beautiful. But um, what I found yesterday, because 
we spoke for quite a long time. I, I try to be there and be as supportive as possible, but I think I remember somebody saying one time, the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved is actually wrong. <laughs> a problem shared is a problem doubled. Exactly. It's so true. Anyway, I'm hoping that... Sorry. See, the thing about it is, Kalimba, if we don't entertain the problem, if we don't entertain the story of what's wrong, um, we don't suffer much. It's only when we're entertaining the story of what's wrong that we really suffer. And so what is is what is. You know, there may be pain, there may be damage, there may be something going on, but our story about it is what creates our suffering. And so we can come into the moment, be very present and not suffer much at all as a result of being present and not having that story. But when we actually share stories with people or promote stories that are miserable, that are sad, we're actually promoting just that, misery and sadness. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'm breaking up a little bit here myself. Um, trying to totally be there is what what I want to do with not only just with Heather but with everybody who has problems. I had a, another interesting situation. There's a uniting church here that has a, a get together lunch for people that either needed or need company. And I went there yesterday. And as we were leaving, one of the ladies said, "Oh, there's a duck and four ducklings that have just come across the road and they're in the, in the scrub around the church here." We better do something about it because um, otherwise they'll go back across the road. So we fiddle diddled around and we tried to phone the Wildlife Association and we decided we should probably just try to put them in a box and move them. And I went in with somebody to try and help do that. And the duck flew out of the garden up into the air and the ducklings were just sitting there and they were crying and crying and crying. It was just, it was so sad. I had to I had to go away and leave the others to it and then I was trying to breathe out the sadness and the sadness and then it came to me that what is meant to happen, what is happening is meant to happen and if it's meant to be they will find the ducklings or the mum will come back and or they'll be able to give them a foster duck mother but it's really really hard to feel sadness like that and totally accept it. But it did work out in the end that I was able to let it in and and accept it, although it still feels sad. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If we're open and not defended, we feel everything, but we don't have to wallow in it by entertaining a miserable story at the same time. You know what I mean? There's a difference. Something can happen where something, some tragedy occurs and we can feel the sadness of the tragedy, but we don't have to wallow in the story of it. Yeah. I think a lot of the problem is if you try to resist it because you don't want to feel the pain, it actually gets worse. To allow it, allow the tears, but don't fight them and don't encourage them. Yep. Just allow what's there to be there. I, I, I like to think of it as warmly welcoming whatever appears, really. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm totally with agreement with you on that one. And just a personal request, if there's any possibility sometime over the weekend that you might be able to give Heather a, a call and sort of share some energy with her, I'm, I'm sure that would be appreciated, mate. 
And thank you for all your sharing. That would be fine, Kalimba. My memory is not the best. If you remind me, send me a message on Messenger because you talk to me on Messenger, that would be great. Thank you very much, mate. Okay. Thanks, Kalimba. This question is from a viewer. Does resistance and suffering add to health problems? Heck yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yep. You're going to be a lot healthier if you don't resist life. If you don't actually um, create a massive amount of suffering. Uh, the stress of suffering uh, deteriorates the immune system, breaks the body down faster. If we really want to have a healthy long life, it's best that our mind is nice and restful. And so uh, learning to not resist life, learning to be an acceptance of life is a health remedy. Um, I mean, we're all going to die within 100 years or so. <laughs> but maybe the quality of the life during that period is a lot better if we're not resisting life. Because when we are resisting life, we are creating a lifestyle that is not pleasant. Rebecca asks, do you think there is truth in the statement that people dislike in others the traits that they don't like and or see in themselves? For example, I dislike the feeling of being judged. Last week, I was noticing shame in myself. I now feel that the shame was maybe around my own judgments. Is that something else to let go of? Wow. <laughs> How about accepting the way you are exactly the way you are? How about being in acceptance of you completely as you are? Everything you find in you, find a way to accept everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's all we really need to do to make the psyche healthy is self-acceptance. See, when we're in full self-acceptance, there's not going to be any shame. Because in full self-acceptance, we are our own best friends. Be tenderly okay with everything you find inside yourself. A viewer asks, why do many enlightened people seem to die earlier? Did they expand their energy manifesting or something? <laughs> what? <laughs> Who says they die earlier? <laughs> I know. Some people die earlier and some people die later. One of the problems with waking up is for a lot of people, they lose touch with their body because their awareness is on itself. And when awareness is not in the body, it doesn't take care of itself properly. And so there is the potential for it to get sick and die. But I don't know whether awake people die earlier or later. And so maybe someone else does know, I don't know. <laughs> Anything? <laughs> Oh 
would you say that talking about veganism is in a way spreading the Dharma? <laughs> Depends on how you talk about it, you know. I've, uh, on uh, Facebook, I'm on a few different chat rooms and pages that are uh, or, or vegan orientated. And there seems to be a lot of angry vegans out there. They don't accept that, uh, they don't accept other people who eat meat. And that's, you know, anger is a form of violence. It's like, what's the point? They're worried about people being uh, violent towards animals, but they're being violent themselves because anger is violence. Look, you've got to find a way to accept everyone as they are. Otherwise, you're going to suffer. You're wondering if talking about veganism is a way of spreading the Dharma. Loving all beings is nice. I love all beings. When you love beings, you can't be involved in their deaths. Not really. Spreading the Dharma is about telling the truth as to who we really are and what we really are. That's really what spreading the Dharma is. Exposing the lie. Showing the truth. Kalimba has a question. Hello. Hi again. It must be a talkative day today. Um, talk, that last question that came up was quite interesting because there's a group called the Rainbow Gathering that goes around Australia and gets together and tries to share positive energy about saving the planet and saving the forest and getting things done right. But it's done in a positive way. And yet one that, there was one at Nanup a couple of years ago and the energy was quite badly frazzled for a day or so when some vegans got really uptight and were being very angry with some of the non-vegans and it just related totally to what you were saying about the last question you know it's like and that connects with this people in the black lives matter thing and when martin luther king's daughter came out and said i feel like everybody else the sadness, shame that goes on about what happened. But when you protest like that, that is just as bad. Anger does not stop anger. Violence cannot stop violence. No. No, it can't. Violence breeds violence. Absolutely. But people, people aren't conscious enough to realize that. That's why your sharings are so important. If, if you can get the message out, not just directly to us, but by us taking it on and maybe being able to raise our vibrations a little bit, maybe spontaneously it can help the energy around us to improve as well. Maybe. Hopefully. You've got to remember, Kalimba, it doesn't really matter because what's going to happen is going to happen yeah. no what we can do as individuals is make this world a little bit more beautiful by supporting love. 
And when we support love, it, it just affects us in such a way that we want to take care. But we can't have an expectation that other people can support it when they're not experiencing it. Yep. I guess I was going around the hundredth monkey theory, which was in a book where the person spoke about <clears throat> monkeys on a group of islands that were having trouble getting food. And then on one of the islands, one of the monkeys found a way of opening the coconut. And then a couple more did. And then suddenly, spontaneously, it started on all the islands at the same time. So this theory was, if enough people pick up the energy, it can actually spread um, without anything being done directly. Hopefully that's true. I don't know. It may just be a concept. It was a conspiracy theory in 1987 that if 144,000 people woke up, it would be enough to light the whole world and awaken the whole world. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And on a certain date, it was supposed to happen, and we all stood <laughs> in the sky waiting, you know, and it didn't happen. I want my money back. <laughs> I was I was in Italy at the time uh, in a place called Villa Volpi with uh, Tirtha Paul Lowe. And uh, we were all standing out there waiting for it to happen. Didn't happen. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, look, and one, one last thing relating to an earlier question was that I've heard it said, and it really resonates with me, because I'm very judgmental about myself sometimes, that you can't change something about yourself until you totally accept it and so that's what i've always been working on if there's something about myself that i judge could be better could be this could be that the first thing i have to do with it is to totally accept it that that is the way it is i understand what you're saying but i don't necessarily agree with it because it's a suggestion that one thing leads to another you can change things without acceptance you know, you can uh, change the motor in your car without accepting the old one that's buggered up. <laughs> you know, really, when you look at it, you can do that. We can we can change things without acceptance. It's just that when we move to acceptance, everything's cool. When we're not in acceptance of anything, it's not cool. Yeah. Acceptance is the answer. In that car from being and be cool about it, or we can change that engine and be unhappy about it. True. Thank you for that, mate. <laughs> this question is from a viewer. Is manifesting real? Sure. Yep, we have, uh, we can use our minds to draw in different things if we want. Unfortunately, most people don't have very well-trained minds, so their manifesting's very good. The other thing about manifesting is um, we can negative manifest by indulging our fears and draw what we're frightened of happening in. If we put enough energy into it. But if you have developed a mind that is very single-pointed, and uh, doesn't have any inter inter interference from low self-worth or anything else, you can draw in things through manifesting. Absolutely. There's a book out called The Secret, I think, and it's all about manifesting. 
there's just one point in there that they miss telling people that that actually works if you practice it for about 10 years. A viewer asks a follow-up question. If you're not using your mind because you're enlightened, are you not manifesting? I use my mind when I need to use it, and when I don't, it is silent. It's a little bit like having a toolbox. When you need a tool to do something, you take the tool out of the box. When you've done the job, you put it back in the box. Well, that's actually how my mind operates. When it's needed, it's used. When it's not being needed, it's silent. This question is from Amber, who asks, I'm trying to support my partner on his way to high consciousness. Yet I'm aware that I'm not his teacher and I don't want to become a rescuer. Would you have any advice for me on how to support him in a healthy way? Yeah, lead by example. Go for higher consciousness yourself. Do what you need to do to raise your consciousness levels. Lead by example. And if they want to play, they'll play. If they want to follow, they'll follow. If they don't, they don't. It's not like your partner's a child, because children, we teach them by example also. But we can't really tell our partners what to do. We can with children. We can say, hey, this is the way, that's not the way. But with our partners, they're adults. Either they're going to get involved or they're not going to get involved. But you lead by example. That's best. Does my work need to be in service of sharing the Dharma and helping others raise the consci consciousness? Depends on whether you want to or not. If you want to, yes. If you don't want to, well, you don't want to. Uh, it's up to you. You're creating your reality. I can't see any point in doing anything else here, but that's my, that's my opinion. And that's just what it is, an opinion. P opinions aren't facts. Are there some jobs that hinder serving truth? Heck yeah. <laughs> There's definitely some jobs that hinder serving truth. Anything, being involved with anything that hurts human beings or animals is not a good way to make a living. Anything that is damaging to others is not a good way to make a living. Anything that takes people into lower consciousness is not such a good way to earn a living. Just have a look at it. What serves high consciousness and what serves lower consciousness? What serves heart and what serves the survival mechanism of the mind? Have a look and see. You really want to be in good service, serve the heart. It's the beauty way. It's a little bit inconvenient, but it's a lovely way to live.
I find a lot of joy in doing volunteer work for the Vishran Buddhist Society and helping people here about satsang. I'm doing it because it makes me happy, but that is still a selfish motivation. How can I give from a non-selfish space? You know, when you serve heart, it does make you happy. I was in service of heart for 10 years before awakening, and it did make me happy. It's what I called manageable happiness, because as long as I was in service to heart, I was happy. I loved helping people. I loved showing people things that would help them get free from whatever suffering they're in as a naturopath and psychotherapist. It was wonderful. It was my love affair with humanity. And it made me very happy to do so. And I don't see a problem with that. There's nothing wrong with being involved in something that actually helps people become happier. There's nothing wrong with being involved in the way of the heart. It's brilliant. And if you get uh, to be happy as a byproduct of that, bonus. As a matter of fact, that's usually what happens. The way of the heart can often be inconvenient and uncomfortable. But there's so much joy in it. There's so much beauty in it. It really is something that's worth being involved in. I think you're overthinking things. Asking the question, is it selfish motivation because you get happy helping others? I think you're overthinking things. Let your mind go. Let your mind go and just be. Everything's good. If you are in service to others, if you are helping others, what a wonderful way to live. What a lovely lifestyle you've created for yourself. There's no need to be negative about it. It's good. You can be in service to others and still earn a, earn, earn a living. As a matter of fact, that's not a bad way to earn a living in being in some kind of service position, helping someone. You can. It really depends on your attitude, where you're coming from. Are you actually there to help people? Or are you there just to make a dollar for yourself? But you can do both. You can make a dollar for yourself and help people. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being in that kind of service. So we all have to make a dollar to live. Have to support ourselves, support possibly family. It's how it is. And of course, it's best to be happy while you're doing it. <laughs> being worried about being happy or selfish. <laughs> it's like, don't, don't give it another thought. Just take care. Be loving, be kind, be generous. This is the way. This is the beauty way to live. Thank you for Satsang. Good to see your brave hearts here today.